I'm David Heitler Clevens. And I'm Rodney Wittenberg. And this is Music for the New Revolution. Hey, everybody. How you doing? It's 2021. Yay. I'm so glad it's 2021. Everything magically got better in 2021. <laughs> no, I know it didn't. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Sometimes we can go from the frying pan into the fire. Ah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we're going to have a, a frank and honest discussion about race. Ah! Which we, <laughs> we had intended to do this a while back. And uh, through mistakes of my own, it did not. It did not. Uh, we, we, anyway. Uh, but uh, <laughs> and I just want to give uh, uh, props to. Reggie Harris and Greg Greenway for inspiring this idea because they've been doing this um, show called Deeper Than the Skin together where they each tell their own stories about uh, race and uh, about whiteness and blackness and racism. And um, I found it really, really moving. And I thought, you know, it'd be a great opportunity for us to also uh, not do something like they did, but inspired by them. Yes, that's awesome, David. And, uh, you know, as a person of color, race is always on my mind, not because I want it to be, but as I say in my one man show, because everyone keeps reminding me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so where should we start, David, on this? Well, very... I think we should start with you, because <laughs> as you said, uh, you know, you're a person of color and, you know, white people have hogged the spotlight for 400 or more years and uh <laughs> i think you know we should we should start with you telling your story i will i will mostly listen and maybe once in a while ask you questions but uh you know oh my story well i did so my story with race is is, is i always think of it as it's complicated in that um when i was a kid growing up my my dad really worked to keep um a lot of the net, the the predatory and negative aspects of race away from us as kids. At the same time, he put us in situations where it was un, like it was just always there. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, my dad was um, someone who was very upwardly mobile, assimilating. He was the first. Uh, black salesperson at Sears in Philadelphia at, at, at a place called in, in an area near Upper Darby. And uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, he was the first to be selling air conditioners and refrigerators, like which was which today may sound like, oh, that's not a big deal. What's the big deal? But back in the early late 50s, early 60s, you could make a lot of money doing that. And um, he was a natural salesperson, but he was the only one uh, of color. Um, and one of the stories he told often was um, there was a store meeting and uh, everyone in the store was brought into this giant meeting and the manager of the store got up in front of everybody and said, you got to sell them inwards. You got to get them inwards in here and spend their inward money. And uh, the way my dad tells the story, there were two people of color in the room and the one, the other, the guy left and... Um, Later that night, he found the store manager and beat the hell out of him and uh, obviously was fired. And my dad went on to be the number one salesperson in not only in that store, but in the company uh, 
and he raised a, a doctor, a writer, and myself. So um, it's a tough, it's such a, a, a hard thing to know about how to fight and combat racism and what it means. And so my dad decided to suck it down and and go on and show them that he was better than everybody else. And uh, by doing better, not just by saying it, but by by doing it and uh, you know I remember the first time I encountered it really encountered it where it was smacked in my face when we had moved to the suburbs we were walking down the street going to catch the trolley and in the town that I grew up in it was kind of split between black and white and we were I was running ahead of my mom and my sister and some kids across the street who are older yell, look at that little N-word. And I looked around because I didn't know who they were talking about. And, uh, and so it was like, oh, they mean me. Oh, well, what does that word mean? Well, what is, why, why are they calling me that? Or what, you know, what is that all about? And it, so it was kind of an interesting um, way of growing up in that we were not like this uh, it was it wasn't a lot of um, African or Afrocentric culture. At the same time, there was. I mean, it's so it's kind of weird. I was raised Catholic, <laughs> and so the church we went to was mixed, um, and uh, we were always vacationing in these very, uh, very interesting <laughs> places, like. Uh, one of the other stories I remember is going uh, as a very young kid. We flew to Buffalo and to go to Niagara Falls, and when we went out to the pool in the hotel in uh, in Buffalo, everyone left. Uh, we were the only black family there, and everybody got up and left. And someone must have broken a glass or a bottle and threw it in the bottom of the pool because there was a glass in the pool, and my dad cut his foot on it. Mm. But he didn't say anything to us as kids that. Oh, there's racism, and this is um, why they. This is why they did that. He was more like, "Well, we, we have the whole pool to ourselves. We're like kings, mm-hmm. you know." And so, um, it, it's it's been an interesting uh, or unique ex- journey I, I've been on in 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 relation to race, and I do think. One of the things I appreciate that my dad gave me was just the ability to to see myself and and the world as individuals, you know, and not as uh, the color they are. But I also think that it's important to see color. I think one of the things that is a mistake in saying you don't see color is that you miss a part of who the person is. And yeah, and exactly. Yeah, and in not seeing who they are, you're also missing. You're missing every. You're missing everything. I mean, right? Yeah. When somebody says, "I don't see color," I, I like to say, "Have you had your eyes checked recently?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think what they mean to say is they, you know, you know what they mean. They, they're, yeah. They're like, I know. They yeah. don't. They they're not going to judge you on your color, but by not judging you on your color, they're also not seeing. They're also not seeing all of you. It's almost like, it's almost like saying, "We're not going to see your color because your color will give us a negative opinion of you." Right. So, it should be possible to see without the judging right. negatively. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Racism. 
race is an interesting, it's a, a deep, not just interesting. I shouldn't say it that way. Uh, it's a deep subject. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious when when your father would kind of put a positive spin on the thing, like all the the white people leaving the pool and yeah. saying, you know, we have the whole pool to ourselves. Do you remember how you felt about that at that time? I thought my dad was a superhero. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I thought it was some kind of magical king or something that people would like kind of like move out of the way in his presence or something. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It was very like interesting. I thought I thought, wow, he must he has a lot of power. We we have this whole pool, giant pool and everything to ourselves and this is great. Um yeah, it got harder though the more the older i got and the more places we went and also what was going on in the world i mean you know i in so martin luther king is assassinated in 68 and i i, I you know these things blur together in my memory but i think 68 or 69 was the summer we went to uh peak skill dude ranch <laughs> for a vacation <laughs> where we were the only, not only the only black family at the ranch, I think we were the only black family for miles and miles because it was in the Catskills. And uh, it was interesting. I mean, you know, how do I explain it? We walk into this room where everyone is doing family-style dining, and so families are sitting with each other and we were late getting there because of the train. It was some rainy weather and stuff. And I remember we walked into this room and the entire room turned and looked at us. And then the, it, it, almost in unison, the entire room turned and looked at the table where there was room for us to sit mm -hmm. with this other family. And we went down and sat with them and they were very uncomfortable with us sitting with them. And, uh, you know, as a kid, you pick up on this stuff, but you don't know what it means, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, but you know, my dad was just, "Hello, how you doing, Lou Wittenberg?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, he was just like, "I belong here. I deserve to be here, and I'm not going to acknowledge that everyone in the room is uncomfortable." <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, that's that's kind of how I felt. It was kind of always con a little confusing, um, also because. Two ethno situations. Parents, some parents were fine with letting their kids play with us at, in places like that, and other parents were like, "No, this is not happening," and they were taking their kids away from us. Yeah, but you know, so it was well, it sounds like your father had a lot of grace and dignity in these awful situations, but he must have had to submerge a lot of pain. Did that? Did you do you feel like that was true? Do you feel like that came out? At, yeah, at some point? I, I do. I think there was, um, you know, he. I think there was some frustration and pain in, in all of this because I think he never felt that he was good enough and that he was always um, aspiring to wanting to be better, but also needing that, like also almost craving that some kind of validation that would make him okay and uh and it was always strange because it, uh, he was an amazing guy in that he would 
purposely do things that would cause him great stress and 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 that he was afraid of, but he would do them anyway. I think mm-hmm. that's one thing I'm very happy I inherited from him. I mean, um, he would like he hated driving, and I know, and he also would fear going through towns or places that he knew could be dangerous but at the same time he would go and so Mm -hmm. as a family you know we're we we would drive down to cape may and it was always weird because i'd see this fear on my dad's face as we're driving down the highway he just hated being on a highway Mm -hmm. driving and yet we went anyway You know, and um, and he and he had these bold ideas. I mean, we almost bought um, we almost bought a hotel in uh in Wildwood, and I think the deciding factor was what it was like to be there in the winter. We we had gone down. I think one summer we had gone and stayed at this uh, hotel motel kind of thing in Wildwood, maybe uh, about five times because we were, my dad was looking at it and he was working on the financing and figuring out how we could afford this and convincing us that it would be great summer jobs for us to take care of the hotel, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes, look, you could swim part of the day in the pool with the, with the guests and then you could clean the rooms. And my sister and I are looking like, yeah, okay, right. That doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> but um, and we went down in the winter like one time and that was it. We were like, my mom and and, and my sister and I were like, no, we're not doing this <laughs> we're mm-hmm. not we're not living here in the winter this is this is depressing <laughs> mm-hmm. so but he was you know always ambitious like that thinking of trying to think of big things that he could do you know big things that were bold and i don't know <laughs> yeah hmm. so uh, so i guess that leads me to i talked a lot so that leads to the first song I, and uh starting off my uh music block with one of my songs. Now, this song is very dated in its, uh, even though it is from the 80s, early 90s. Um, er, in the early 90s, I started interviewing my grandparents about their life experiences on a tape, on a cassette. And um, my grandfather started telling me these stories reluctantly because he didn't want to tell them. So this is my grandfather on my mother's side. And they grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, and they were born in 1917 and 1919, respectively, my grandparents. And uh, and they lived through, I mean, my grandfather saw cross burnings. He saw people getting whipped. He he experienced the South, the, the racism that we all think of when we think of race, like very overt kind of Southern, you know, lynching and all that sort of stuff. He experienced it so he had a very different perspective on it than my dad who grew up in in, so, in the city in south philly the, where the ins- racism was more institutionalized uh mm-hmm. so he was telling me these stories and i have always felt like i didn't fit in anywhere so i came up with this little hook called don't fit in and uh and i made this sort of fictitious character that traveled around the world looking for a place where he wouldn't be judged by um, the col- how people perceived him. And I say it's dated because uh, the last part of the song, he goes to South Africa, and at that point, South Africa wasn't free. So mm-hmm. uh, so it's a little 
Oh, and then there's a uh, uh, there is a <laughs> a very cheesy element to the song uh, that it opens with a sample from from Lethal Weapon Two. <laughs> I don't know why I love those cheesy cop buddy movies, but uh, but that's what's there. So here it is. Uh, don't fit in from uh, me. Listen to your friend here. He knows what he's talking about. I don't think you really want to go to South Africa. Why not? Because you're black.
powerful song Rodney oh thank you <laughs> yeah it sounds really great thank you very much yeah wow it, it, I hear that it always takes me back to like just where I was at that point in my life and it's like uh, that sense of just not knowing wh- where you fit in <laughs> mm-hmm. and who you are and and it's also also to see how much has changed even though we're in the, still in the midst of the fight uh, I had no idea that we would, you know, one day elect Barack Obama president and just so many things in the world would be different and South Africa yeah. would be free. I think right around the time I wrote this, I actually spent a little an afternoon, too, with Winnie Mandela because I was teaching at Lincoln University and she came to do a talk and just a, a, a weird series of events. I ended up hanging out with her in the dressing room. I don't know how that happened, but uh, that's the story of weird things that happened in my life. It's just happened to be in a in the right place at the right time. And, uh, mm. you know, uh, had some interesting conversations with her about just South Africa and, and uh, what her and her husband were doing at the time. But, uh, yeah, yeah uh, so... That's also, I think, where why, why there's that element of it sounding sort of uh, there's that big openness to the song of uh, where it sounds kind of like it's sort of African kind of I don't know. Anyway, uh, so the next block of songs, uh, you know, I I am um, always moved by people who um, who join the fight who don't have to. And, and that particularly means people who are not of color. And, and uh, so the next block of songs is all about that. It's about uh, people who figure out how to take a stand for uh, for something that in some ways, uh, well, I think racism and, and race affects everyone, but not everybody owns up to that or, or acknowledges it. And, uh, yeah. you know, one of the things I was I was struck by a couple years ago, I went to a, the Omega conference and uh, I was uh, acting as a, a reporter and interviewing people. And there was a panel discussion, and on the panel were some pretty prom- prominent people. Uh, there was a rabbi for the Clintons, Ra- Michael Leonard. Is that his name, Michael Rabbi? Oh, I think I've heard him, but I don't remember his name. Yeah, <laughs> and Maya Angelou and Sonia Sanchez and. You know who I who who you've heard me talk about before because I've gotten to know her a little bit and some other notable, prominent people who are progressive leaders and outspoken either in the arts or in, you know, other fields. But the one thing I was struck by was how 
everyone spoke for their cause and not for the others. Mm. And um, it always bothers me in movements like how if I want to, I think that was the power of Martin Luther King. If, if I want to be free, then everyone has to be free. Not, well, I want to be free and I'm not going to worry about the rest of you. Now, to be clear, that doesn't, I'm not in any way uh, besmirching Black Lives Matter because I think that's a different different thing. Right. Um, but, um, but I do wish that there were a way that more people would stand up for the other's causes. And I think if that were to happen, things would move a lot faster. Mm-hmm. So that's well, I think one inspiring example of that is the mm-hmm. kids from Parkland yeah. who really reached out to Black Lives Matter as a movement and, you know, recognized that this horrible thing that happened in their school once is the kind of violence that people of color are facing on a daily basis, you know, and nobody pays or nobody was paying much attention to it. I think that somewhat that has changed yeah uh post george floyd you know but but uh but still we you know it's it's an ongoing battle to get people to recognize that that there's a real problem uh, yeah. But, yeah until it, until it shows up on their front doorstep or it affects them and uh right. that's it's just not it, it it's hard to bring about real change if that's where everyone is so the this the set of three songs is all about people who made moves to change that or, or recognize it or do something about it. <laughs> Excellent. So so we have your racist friend from They Might Be Giants. We have something really, really special. Um uh the song Steals of the White Man I really wanted to play. It's from John McCutcheon, but it's very difficult to find a recording of it. And so uh, we reached out to him, and he sent us an exclusive recording of him singing uh, the song Steals of the White Man. He also let us know that he first learned it from Hazel Dickens, and she learned it from a collection of J. Barry Tolkien of the University of Oregon, who collected songs from an Indian in Nebraska named Yellow Man. And it's variously claimed by both Chickata and uh, the Cherokee uh, sources. But this song is so powerful and we're so lucky that we have this exclusive version of Steals of the White Man from John McCutcheon. And uh, Dragon to Butterfly from David Roth.
Last said an Indian, I once had a home in a fair forest glade where the wild deer did roam, where the sacrilege feast on a festival day. But now the steels of the white man have took them away. I once had a mother, the pride of my youth, and a father who taught me the practice of truth. Now their spirits have left them as cold as the clay, and the steels of the white man have took them away. I once had a brother, the pride of the veil, and a sister whose cheeks were ruddy and pale. And I'd often join them in innocent play, but the steels of a white man have took them away. And now I'm alone, the last of my race. And I know in this world that I have no place. My friends and relations have all passed away for the steals of a white man have took them away and now i must follow the great spirit calls to the land of the blessed where the brave never falls to that blissful green shore and the cool forest glade where the steels of the white man shall never invade. It was early September in Lincoln, Nebraska. Two friends were conversing at dusk on a porch. One was all wrapped up in blankets and pillows, the other an old overcoat. Affection was easy to witness between them, the physical closeness, the tender exchange. The one in the coat gently stroking the other, who struggled but managed to talk just the same. He said, do you remember the day we met, Michael? I heard you were coming and I called many times. I didn't want someone like you to move in here. I wasn't used to your kind. But instead of returning my ignorant curses, you just kept on answering the phone. And you knocked on my door with a bucket of chicken The first time you came to my home 
Two men were laughing now, shaking their heads with a sense of the passage about to take place. Larry, if someone had said we'd be friends, I'd have called them insane to their face. But you can't always tell what's inside of an apple, and you can't always trust what you see. Michael continued to wonder out loud after Larry had drifted to sleep. How a man can move mountains, a world can be turned, and the greatest of distances easily spanned. When the strength that's invested in making a fist is transformed into shaking a hand. Michael brought Larry back into the house. And then Michael's wife Julie helped Larry to bed. A lifelong diabetic confined to a wheelchair couldn't do much for himself anymore. So they'd taken him in to unravel the pain. How his father made fun of him planting the seed. And the root of the anger that grew so completely once strangled his heart like a weed. But a man can move mountains, a world can be turned, and the greatest of distances easily spanned. And the strength that's invested in making a fist is transformed into shaking a hand. breath in his bedroom at Michael's came later that night with his friend at his side. Thank you was all he could whisper for changing a dragon to a butterfly. For Larry was once a white knight, the grand dragon with robes and with torches, with scorn and with hate. Michael, the rabbi who'd just moved to Lincoln with two open arms and with faith. That a man can move mountains, a world can be turned, and the greatest of distances easily span. When the strength that's invested in making a fist is transformed into shaking a hand. When the strength that's invested in making a fist is transformed into shaking a hand. So that was um, Your Racist Friend from uh, They Might Be Giants, uh, Steel of the White Man from John McCutcheon, and Dragon to Butterfly from David Roth. And boy, that those lyrics in Dragon to Butterfly and the sentiment of it, like thinking at uh, just the idea that a or rabbi, uh, a Jewish man, would help a grand wizard of the clan <laughs> through that last part of life and transitioning into death and change his heart. It, it's so, it's it's very, very moving. Mm. So, uh, so that leads me to my last little story 
And this one's a little silly and funny, but um, I, I love the story. So uh, right before the pandemic hit, I did a, a one-man show called How called um, How I Discovered I Was Black Because Everyone Keeps Reminding Me. And it's a sort of humorous look at my life and having parents that uh, were assimilating. And uh, But one of the, 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 the end of the show... I, I talk about a, a, a recent experience that uh, I think sort of sums up the, con- the, the, the ultimate, the, the confusion and weirdness of race. <laughs> uh, so I was uh, at the airport uh, flying to England. <laughs> and uh, we'll start by saying one of my favorite singers in the world, hands down, it's Karen Carpenter. And, you know, <laughs> as a musician who hangs out with other musicians from time to time, I always get a lot of crap for saying that. Uh, people are like, oh, she's so cheesy. I'm like, but she's, she's such a great drummer. And I, I said this to someone recently. She's such a great drummer. Like, she plays drums? Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, she's a great drummer. And, um, and also, I just love singers that sing with pure tone. I know there's all those great singers out there who do all sorts of theatrics and can do gymnastics with their voice and, you know, like run scales and all that sort of stuff. But someone who can interpret a song can that can sing two words and move you, that is what blows me away. Mm. And and then whether it's whether the person has a great tone or not, I don't care. In this case, Karen Carpenter has amazing tone, but you know, someone like Bob Dylan doesn't have great mm-hmm. tone, but boy, can he wreck you with lyrics and mm-hmm. and and delivery and phrasing and you know, uh, I would even see someone like say someone like Gil Scott Heron doesn't have a great voice, but you know, when he says a word, it's got gravitas. <laughs> if I can mm-hmm. be so pretentious. <laughs> But well, is it, is partly what you're saying. A lot of these singers, to me, are people maybe who make you. Uh, they put the focus on the song instead of on themselves or on their voice. So they yes. may have a great voice, like Karen Carpenter, but the what what comes through is the song itself, right? The meaning of the song, and right. So I have this just a deep deep love for Karen Carpenter and an embarrassment that I <laughs> as a as a big black guy. That I love Karen Carpenter so much, and in my brain, I you know, there's a little uh, okay. I got to keep this secret. I can't let this out. So, mm-hmm. back to the story. I'm at the airport, and I'm sitting there waiting to get on the flight, and there is a black gentleman at the counter who is doing something at the counter, and I'm at a seat where I'm can see we, we can see each other there's nothing in the way there's no more seats in the way of our eyesight and so i'm sitting there and all of a sudden over the loudspeaker comes a carpenter song and i'm trying not to make it look like i'm into it because i don't want to i don't know i just don't want to be seen as that black guy i don't i'm trying to i'm sort of fronting in a way <laughs> mm-hmm. for the black guy that's in front of me like yo bro i'm not i'm not a sellout or an oreo or whatever 
I'm I'm down with the cause. Yeah. So I'm trying, doing my best not to let the song seep into my body. But I'm a musician and I can't help it. But I'm <laughs> doing a good job of being stoic. I'm sitting there still. And as the song is playing, the guy, for some reason the guy and I keep making contact. Keep our eyes keep connecting and finally he looks at me and he goes Karen Carpenter is the shit. <laughs> and I just had this big grin on my face. And I went, oh, you know, the truth is the truth. <laughs> and there's no reason to hide from it. So in a weird way for our race episode, here's my last song, The Carpenters. We've only just begun to live White lace and promises A kiss for luck and we're on our way You know, Rodney, when you were talking earlier about, um, you know, people who don't have to stand up mm -hmm. for people of color, you know, but do, mm -hmm. uh, allies, 
Um, I was thinking actually back on something I've heard as part of that um, Deeper Than the Skin uh, show that, mm-hmm. that Reggie Harris and Greg mm-hmm. Greenway do. And one of the things that Reggie says in introducing Greg is saying that one of the reasons he wanted to do this with Greg is that he knows Greg is one of those white people who will will speak up against racism even when there's nobody uh, African-American or, per, you know, no person in, of color in the room. Yeah. You know, like Reggie doesn't have to be there for Greg to care about it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, you are one of those people yourself too. Well, I, I'm striving. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think that's the important thing uh, too is that, um, you know, a friend of mine made a documentary a couple of years, like maybe 20 years ago, uh, where he found he got six people of color and six uh, white people and asked them about race. And the thing that was so powerful is the white people never think about race until there's a per- someone different around. Mm-hmm. But uh, people of color think about it all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a luxury for white people. Well, that's the idea of white privilege, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's not, not a, a question for people of color whether they have to think about about race and you know that's part of the i think the point of your show right mm-hmm. yeah uh, that you keep being forced to think about it yeah um, uh-huh. yep. yeah yes so so you had some stories you were going to share yeah um if that's okay yeah. and uh, um you know obviously i had very different experience because i did not grow up in in your skin i don't live in your skin rodney and mm. um and uh you know uh I grew up in the Midwest in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is, um, you know, people, if they know things about Ann Arbor, you know, sometimes what people associate with Ann Arbor is that it has a lot of progressive politics. The SDS started there mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they have had this progressive $5 pot law and <laughs> things like that. But, the, you know, the other thing about Ann Arbor, a lot of times people don't know if they're not from the area is it's an extremely segregated uh, town. It's a pretty big college town like 150,000 people mm-hmm. um and um and there's a significant african american population there always has been but but when i was growing up it was extremely segregated um and um one thing that i uh grew up with and it's part of the reason why i end up doing this show with you rodney is that um my parents were very involved in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and that's part of how I grew up with this link in my mind between social justice and music, because obviously the civil rights movement was a real singing movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, my parents were directly involved in marches and desegregation drives and things like that. And uh, uh, they went to Antioch College and Martin Luther King was their commencement speaker, which I thought was amazingly cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and uh, anyway, so, you know, I grew up with a lot of their their stories and their their sort of oral history about that movement and listening to a lot of the music of the movement. Um, and um, and that sense of that, that there were a lot of white people who were allies, who were part of the Freedom Rides and even people who were killed, uh, like the two uh, mm-hmm. of the three in Mississippi mm-hmm. that Mississippi Burning is about and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, and a lot of the white people were Jews as we, as our family is. Um, and that also, I think gave our family some sense of sort of, uh, tribal pride, uh, in, in, you know, being part of that movement. And it's been sad to see how the alliances between 
African-Americans and Jews have sort of eroded over time, uh, you know, and uh, uh, a lot of those connections that were made of common cause have not always held um, strongly. Um, uh, but anyway, so, you know, when I was a kid, a lot of the ways that I learned about race and about racism and about the civil rights movement was through music. And um, I found a lot of the the music of the civil rights movement to be particularly inspiring. Um, and I remember one time, actually, I was in Washington, D.C. with my parents, and we just happened upon this reunion of the SNCC Freedom Singers that was happening in one of the Smithsonian uh, museums. I think there's, I even came across once on TV, on PBS, a, a, a documentation of that very reunion that I think we were in the audience for. It was incredible, uh, just just amazing. And the, the Freedom Singers had these amazing voices. Bernice Johnson Regan went on to form Sweet Honey in the Rock um, out of that. And um, so I have a couple songs I wanted us to listen to. I actually had to digitize these from an LP of uh, stuff from the Newport in 1963. Um, so I thought we could listen to a little sandwich of uh, Freedom Singers, Pete Seeger, Freedom Singers. Uh, and uh, the, the first Freedom Singers song is Fighting for My Rights, which is actually new words to a Ray Charles song. You know, a lot of the old Freedom songs had been based on spirituals. Uh, but the Freedom Singers, one of their innovations was to start to, you know, base things on more current music on on soul and on R&B and on uh, even rock and roll and stuff like that. So Fighting for My Rights is, is based on a Ray Charles song. Uh, and then we'll hear Pete Seeger doing We Shall Overcome uh, with the Freedom Singers as part of the, the chorus at, at Carnegie Hall. And then back to the Freedom Singers with a doo-wop-y kind of song, sometimes called Dog Dog, sometimes called I love your dog, I love my dog. Now I'm tired of segregation and now I want my equal rights. Well, respect and education. Well, not total integration. Now that's why I'm fighting for my rights. I'm fighting for my rights. Yes, I'm fighting for my rights. Yes, I'm fighting for my rights. Now myself get a hand the window so the air it couldn't come through and I felt so hot and stuffy and then I didn't know what to do. I still I was fighting for my eyes. No, I was fighting for my eyes. I was fighting for my eyes. I was fighting for my eyes. Now my mom, but she done told me now I own a dying bed. Now if my son don't get his freedom, I'd rather see him dead. That's why I'm fighting for my rights. Whoa, I'm fighting for my rights. Yes, I'm fighting for my rights. Yes, I'm fighting for my Oh, 
especially like to dedicate this verse to an old friend of mine. I think she's the oldest person here tonight. Aunt Alice Pollitt, sir. Lovely. 93 years old, and she came to sing with us. We are not afraid. We Dog, 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 my dog, I love your dog, and your dog, I love 
love my dog, and my dog, I love your dog, and your dog, I love my dog, and my dog, I love your dog. I'm talking about a black dog, I'm talking about a white dog, I'm talking about a coon dog, I'm talking about a rabbit dog, all them dog, all them dog, all them dog, I love your dog, all them dog, I love your dog, but then why can't we? Sit on the apple tree, you walk, walk with me, oh, you walk, talk with me, well, why don't you hold my hand and tell me, you understand now, can't you see that you and me would be so happy, sit on the apple tree. My little dog, it was a plan one day, duck, 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 down in the middle by a bundle of hay, duck, 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 Another little dog, he came along. Said, let's get together and eat this bone. Then why can't we sit on the apple tree? You walk, walk with me. Oh, you walk, talk with me. Well, why don't you hold my hand and tell me? You understand now. Can't you see that you and me would be so happy? Sit on the apple tree. My dog, I love your dog, and your dog, I love my dog, and my dog, I love your dog. I'm talking about a black dog, I'm talking about a white dog, I'm talking about a coon dog, I'm talking about a rabbit dog, all them dogs. All them dogs, I love my dog. All them dogs, all them dogs, all them dogs, all them dogs, all So I love that uh, dog, dog, freedom singers yeah. song. It's it's so much fun. Mm-hmm. I just heard uh, actually uh, Sparky and Rhonda Rucker do a, a two person version of that, and they did a very nice job. But I don't think anything quite matches up to the freedom singers mm-hmm. way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, like I said, mm-hmm. I grew up in Ann Arbor, which was very segregated, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I remember having you know, some close relationships with kids who are African-American. You know, I I remember one friend especially who I was really good friends with Mm. when I was a pretty little kid. And, um, you know, I I, I was thinking about him because I was thinking about how how racism can kind of infect everything, you know, and Mm. how it's sort of the air we breathe and and even – with well-meaning, you know, good intentions and stuff, mm-hmm. white people, you know, and myself included, can fall into ugly behaviors. And I was, I was thinking of this story of this time with this friend Joey uh, that that I've felt ashamed of ever since. Which I think we were playing soccer, and he did something that made me angry, and I was so enraged with him, so beyond what it was that. And I have no idea what even what, what it was that he did. I don't think we did anything wrong really at all. But I'm just saying, like, my anger. Mm-hmm. And I look back at that and I thought, where did that come from? Mm. What? Why was I so 
angry at him and it and it and it and I'm like I said I'm ashamed of it because I feel like that is an example of how uh those racist feelings were in me you know mm-hmm. in spite of everything that my parents had taught in spite of everything that I wanted to be mm-hmm. um and uh I know a lot of times I've been in anti-racist workshops where people say guilt is a totally worthless thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I have trouble with that, partly because I'm Jewish. Guilt <laughs> is such a part of me. Uh, and maybe you can relate being Catholic, Rodney. Uh, but, <laughs> um, you know, and I also just think that, and I'm not saying that, the, that they're wrong, but I feel like it's, for me, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, how a little kid deals with, with a hot stove or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, sometimes you have to be burned and feel that pain and realize I'm not going to do that again because mm-hmm. that was not good. That didn't make me feel good. And so I, I feel like guilt can be helpful at least if we see it as a learning experience. So if, mm-hmm. if I, you know, if I did this thing and I feel ashamed of it, I feel guilty about it, then hopefully that's gives me the impulse to not do that thing again. You know, like yeah. I, I, uh-huh. I don't want to feel that way again. I don't want to, you know, carry that guilt. So I don't know. I, I, do you have an opinion about well, that, Rodney? <laughs> I, I think that what that the acknowledgement of the thing is awesome, and if it if it uh, fosters a transformation or change or growth, that's also great. But I think the the danger is, um, or or well, I, I, I'll share a quick story. I know it's your turn to share stories. No, that's, that's fine. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> so I was running and I was working in a nonprofit. Uh, we were going in the schools. And uh, working in uh, some of the tougher neighborhoods in Philly, and uh, and they were predominantly African American. And I don't know. One day we were at this school, and this kid who hadn't been in the in school for maybe four or five days showed up. He was all dirty. His clothes were, you know, dirty. He looked just beaten up, and you could see that the life was draining out of his eyes. And he, this was like a fifth grade class. It was a little kid. Mm. And so we were doing a um, some kind of drawing exercise. I don't remember exactly what it was, but we were doing this drawing exercise. And um, a kid who's sitting next to him, either on purpose or mistakenly, picked up what he perceived to be his pencil and he jumped on the other kid and just started punching and beating on him brutally. Like like mm-hmm. brutal for a little kid to jump on someone and pound on them that quickly and that fast. And so I so I had a staff of people who worked with me and we all separated him. And I remember um, looking at him and going, I know you're in something like I said, so I, don't, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I said, I know you're in pain and I know something's hurting you, but you can't do that or they win. You know, the, the people who don't want you to succeed, they win. And then he he hugged me and broke down crying like uh, it just like everything just broke for him and he wouldn't let go. I mean, he was just holding on to me and hugging me. And then eventually he let go and uh on my staff i had two um child therapists who took him out into the hall so the class could continue doing the drawing exercise and they did some processing with him and then they uh took him down to the the guidance counselor who also was doing some kind of you did some more support 
for him. He didn't get in trouble. And somewhere in the middle of the day, I started crying, and I could not stop. I was just crying. I just could not stop crying. Like, I, I, we had to do a presentation that afternoon, and I was on stage just holding back these tears. It was just insane. I, and I got home, and it now had been maybe seven hours since the incident happened, and I was still crying, like uncontrollably mm. sobbing. And so I called up my therapist. Yes, first world problems. I call my therapist and she says to me, okay, this was very moving, but you have to stop crying. You're indulging, you're so indulging yourself and it's so inappropriate. And I go, what do you mean? But it hurt. She goes, you get to come home to your nice apartment that you drove in your car and that you're going to have a perfectly safe, fine evening tonight with no problems at all. Where is that kid going? You do him a disservice by sitting here indulging your uh, your your emotion. It's privilege. Stop it. Mm-hmm. It's it's horrible. And I went, oh, you're right. Like, I'm fine. There's no like, this is all just so indulgent. And if I and if I want to be moved by what happened or changed or transformed, I that's great. Like, I'm more aware. I'm. I could be strategic. I could use uh, use that energy to do something else and mm-hmm. maybe further make a change in other kids' lives or something. But for me to just sit there for seven hours and cry sure, yeah. is just so indulgent and privileged. Right. So I think well, I think that you're, that really points to the reason why mm-hmm. in some of the anti-racism workshops that I've been in, they've said mm-hmm. this idea that it's not helpful, guilt is not helpful. But I guess what you started off saying mm-hmm. is the side of it that I think it, mm-hmm. it, that I'm emphasizing. So mm-hmm. wallowing in your guilt mm-hmm. and not having it lead anywhere, that is not helpful and could be seen and could be described as self-indulgent. Yeah. Uh, um, but I think the idea I was getting at was more if – you can use your guilt to motivate yourself to change and to act, then it's helpful. So I don't yeah. see it as just automatically a bad thing to feel yeah. guilt or to feel shame. It's just how you direct it and maybe how much it's about you and how much it's about directing it outwards yeah. so that you yeah. actually try to change things. Yeah. Um, I, I I would I don't feel like comfortable discounting all possible positive outcomes <laughs> from Feeling guilty, I yeah. guess, you know, is, is yeah. what I would say. And and I'm, I just have to speak personally. I know personally that, you know, wanting to, you know, like say say I'm in a situation, which I've definitely been in, where somebody has said or done something racist. If I have not spoken out against it, I feel guilty about that. I feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what motivates me to think ahead and to try to strategize of what will I do the next time so I don't feel that you yeah. know uh you know and it's not only so I don't feel that it's also to do the right thing but I think that's a part of it emotionally yeah. for mm-hmm. me anyway mm-hmm. um and and so um you know I I know some people might say well that's not helpful but I actually personally find it helpful sometimes so yeah. <laughs> that's why I'm <laughs> making the point <laughs> they, 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 yeah. they, I also think and, and uh I'll get uh we'll get hate me off I said not that you have to let yourself off the hook, but I think that life is is an evolution. I you know like I was looking talking to some people about the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you know the story that he was a slave trader, was right. on a, and 
he had this moment of grace and it took him what 15 or 20 years to go from a slave trader to an abolitionist and some people would say well why did it happen faster like why did it take so long um but that's looking back through the lens of now and you know people have those moments where they see something and 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 it takes time we're human you know it, it if it's deprogramming you want to call it or if it's uh if, if so yeah like having that guilt present is not a bad thing mm-hmm. uh, and if it inspires you to keep moving and growing that's fine but yeah but yeah the, the other side of it is i think that you know there are those people who will go down the rabbit hole of indulgence <laughs> right definitely and, true. yeah so well i was thinking about the you know one really uh pivotal um event in my life in terms of understanding more about race more about the the history of the way uh that african americans in particular have been treated in this country was when the miniseries roots came out in the in the 70s mm-hmm. you know and i know that there've been some criticisms of that more recently and there was a a, a reboot of that um and, and but i i still think it's worth recognizing what a cultural impact mm-hmm. that had and maybe especially on white people because I'm sure lots of African-American people knew this history plenty well although I do think that it did fill in some gaps for some people and also inspired among all kinds of people a search for their roots and yeah. the, the sort of gene- genealogy it started off a whole yeah. movement I think but yeah. um, but I really uh, do think that there was a lot of power st- powerful stuff in that and um, you know in my memory I had not realized that there was the original roots series that only went up to just after the civil war mm-hmm. and then there was another series i always put those together oh, in my yeah. memory as one thing so when i re-watched them you know more recently mm-hmm. we, we watched the first you know original series yeah. and it got to the end and i was like that's not the end yeah. i was like really upset because i was like that's not the end but where's where's when they come back from world war one and when you know and and all the you know all these different things and that were really i think in some ways that second one that roots the next generation the or whatever it's yeah. called was at least as powerful as the first because it had things about lynchings and it mm-hmm. had things about, you know, what happened to service people when they came back from the world wars. And, you know, there was just a lot in that second one. And it all gets all the way up to when Alex Haley is, uh, you know, writing the, the book for, for Malcolm X yeah. and, you uh-huh. know, meeting the Nazi leader played by yeah. Marlon Brando yeah. and you know, all these kinds of, you know, things like that. So anyway, I, I, I think that whatever the faults of those series were, I just want to recognize that they had a huge impact on me and, and, you know, kind of schooled me in a lot of things. And um, there was a a real power to a lot of those stories that came out through that also was a who's who of actors, both black and white at the time. Right. I mean, they were just incredible casts and anyway, so just, you know, to recognize that I thought it'd be fun to listen to Quincy Jones uh, theme from this uh, that I, that I found. And uh, so let's hear that.
All right. So, you know, um, and I, I was thinking about that that uh, miniseries again a little bit, and I was thinking about one of the things, you know, there's this whole concept. I think that the writer, Aditya, talks about this, about where does the story start, you know, and who gets to start the story, you know, um, and I think the fact that that goes back to a depiction of sort of everyday life in Africa before getting to slavery, mm-hmm. it was a for kind of a new and revolutionary thing in our yeah. U.S. mainstream culture that, uh-huh. you know, so often the story started with slavery. Right. Um, and that, of course, has a certain sense to it. Like, you know, there was no life before that for people yeah. who were black, <laughs> you know, and and so I think this reframes that yeah. um, in an important way. And somebody actually made that comment to me when I was doing a workshop at an education conference about uh, race and, you know, sort of political mm-hmm. music and stuff like that. And I started with Underground Railroad songs. And they were like, you know, you really need to go back <laughs> before that because it's there's a certain message that you're giving from doing that. And yeah. I heard that. And I, you know, next time I do that workshop, I'm going to do it differently. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Boy, uh, Roots was such a big thing for me. Uh, and that song in particular, it's one of the uh, first pieces of music I learned to play on the piano mm-hmm. uh, was the theme song to Roots. And it's one of the first things I ever figured out by ear. Oh, cool. Um, and I, I think I, I remember recording it from the TV and then sitting at the, my little keyboard and learning, all, playing the cassette over and over again. Just play, like literally chord it in the room from the television on the cassette player recorder. Yeah. And then playing it back. <laughs> we had so let few, uh, <laughs> much fewer options for getting audio back then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So that piece of me. And listening to it just now, it's really, the, God, Quincy is so brilliant. Um, how the theme works as an African melody, but it also works as a Celtic melody. Mm-hmm. And it works as a sort of mid 20th century pseudo jazz theme i mean it's like very interesting how it's really an interesting it's amazing how that theme can just adapt itself through sort of musically telling the story of roots which Mm -hmm. is pretty amazing uh also you mentioned the, the second generation roots i was just looking at that recently uh and uh i don't know why in my mind the second one doesn't seem as acted as well as the first one, but you're right, it's <laughs> got tons of uh, people in it. But I was, um, I'm in the process of working on a film right now that is about the relationships between blacks and Jews. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene in there I was just using when I was talking to the producers and uh, some of the other team, just that I thought was pretty powerful in the second generation when the uh, shop owner has to explain to. Uh, Alex Haley's soon-to-be father-in-law. Alex Haley, is it Alex? It's Alex Haley's dad's father-in-law. Mm-hmm. He has to explain to him why the white people don't like him because he's Jewish. And uh, I thought that was a powerful learning moment in, <laughs> in that mm-hmm. series mm-hmm. Um, because it's it's the beginning of the uh, that relationship that you talk about. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and, and then the other thing I was thinking of, too, you talked about the power of Roots on TV. Um, in doing my research on that, one of the things that blew me away uh, was, uh, I don't know if you know the story, but um, the night 
that the day that John Lewis uh, marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which I think it's March 7th, 63, I think, or 64. I have to look it up again. Don't quote me, people out there. Okay. Um, but that night, the film version of The Trials of Nuremberg premiered on ABC TV, and there were 47 million people watching, and the news broke in with the sh- shots of the people on the bridge walking over the bridge being attacked by dogs and beaten and that changed the basically the whole country but particularly amped up or um got more jewish people involved in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. that one thing because the, the the march that we all think about over the edmund prentice bridge is the one with martin luther king which actually they didn't go over the bridge but you know the one with john lewis had about if I remember correctly in my reading, it had about 900 people, and the one with Martin Luther King had seven or 8,000 people, and it was a multicultural, multi-ethnic march. Mm. So that juxtaposition of the Nuremberg trials with the f- what was happening right then, I can imagine, had people making connections. Yes. And, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's fa- I never heard that before. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, so... One you mentioned earlier, South Africa and mm-hmm. the the movement, uh, the anti-apartheid movement was a particularly powerful movement in my life. You know, I, I had always sort of wanted to be more involved in activism, but for some reason, it, it took me getting to college to really get immersed in you know becoming more of an activist. And at that point in the mid '80s, the the big campus issue really was anti-apartheid and divestment from companies that do business in South Africa. And I got very involved in that and, you know, got in trouble, good trouble as, uh, as uh, John, John Lewis would, John say. Lewis would say, um, at least I hope it was good. No, it was good trouble. Uh, you know, and I actually almost, I came very close to going on a hunger strike, which I got talked out of doing at the last minute, which probably good because I, I kind of doubt that tactic would have worked and all I would have done, it would have been to hurt myself, but still, I, I'm just saying I was very committed. <laughs> and um, one of my wife, Jenny's at, and my first dates was sleeping in a shanty town. We had erected at Oberlin college as part of that whole thing. And uh, <laughs> uh. so a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the music that, that was related to that was, uh, particularly moving and powerful to me. And um, so why don't we listen to a couple things that are connected to that. Uh, first, uh, the great group Sweet Honey and the Rock that I mentioned before that uh, was founded by Bernice Johnson Regan, who had been in the Freedom Singers. Um, this is a song that kind of connects up different situations and movements in the world. Chile, your waters run red through Soweto. Great kind of early song of intersectionality, I think you could call it. Yeah. Uh, and then you also mentioned Gil Scott Heron a little bit ago, and um, I thought we could hear um, his contribution to that Sun City album mm. that many, many people are on. And uh, yeah. little Stephen Van Zant was one of the, you know, kind of originators of the whole yeah. concept. But it was a very interesting collection of people from Miles Davis and the Fat Boys and all kinds of, you know, people from many different genres, you two. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so we'll hear Let Me See Your ID from that. Chile, your waters run red. If you've heard about Chile, then you've heard about Soweto. They're the blood of a 
oppression runs deep as the mines. Chile, your waters run red through Soweto. The hands that choked the spirit of Aliene pull the trigger on the children in a muddy Soweto street. Chile, your waters run red through Soweto. The hands that turned the key in ten Wilmington jail cells put young Stephen Mitchell in a dusty hill grave. Chile, your waters run red the hands of oppression are the hands of hunger. The waters of Chile fill the banks of Cape I said, Chile, your waters run red, yeah, Soweto. The same hands. Nothing casual about dying. Nothing casual about standing for freedom. 
My grandmother used to say, if you don't stand for something, you'll go for anything. We stand against the apartheid. Stand against the apartheid. Let me see you. I do. Let me see you. I do. Well, we're sick and tired of what we heard. I think apartheid is quite absurd. Prejudice is the reason people have died. Yes, prejudice stands for apartheid. So we all get together to let our hands bring people to peace all across the land. We've got to stop running like I've ever tried. I had never met anyone from Southern Africa until I started going to school. I was going to Lincoln University down in Pennsylvania. There were South African refugee students there who were, uh, many of them were athletes, and we started to compare experience and stuff. And they were telling me that when you walk around in South Africa, you got to carry this little black book with you that tells everybody whether you're supposed to be in a given area or not. Damn, there's a parallel in my life, because I got to do that when I go to Philly. Let me see you, I do. Especially this church and that state, we stand against the apartheid. Stand against the apartheid. Let me see you, I Let me see you, I Yeah, politicians think they stand by shaking your hand and then they hold you back as much as they can. They try to keep you weak from getting strong because they know if it's going to gonna change what's wrong. Bad my point, bad it now, like Stevie Wonder. I'm gonna speak out loud. Cause where you live. Man, even if they got a stick 
Uh, there's some really great pointed humor in that. Let me see your ID, right, right yeah. <laughs> Yes. Uh huh. Gil Scott Heron could really uh, get those zingers in there. I, I always loved that bit about you know, first time I heard them talking about trouble in the Middle East, I thought they were talking about Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, my, my my favorite still is Whitey on the Moon. Uh, oh yeah. Th- yeah. Th- yeah. Th- Very th- early on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. I love it. That makes me laugh. Uh, well, so so we've solved. All, so in this past hour and a little bit, we've solved all the problems of race, and we could all go on and be happy. Oh and- yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just actually I wanted to mention that you know there's some great work being done these days, mm-hmm. and um, Rodney and I have talked before about an organization we're both part of called the Children's Music Network, and I think. That people within the Children's Music Network are really passionate about trying to address some of these issues. And actually, I'm going to a meeting tonight of uh, sort of white anti-racist uh, mm-hmm. activity. Uh, and it's not only for white people, but, you know, it's recognizing <laughs> the fact that anti-racism in a way is particularly the job of white people. Like that- we need to take responsibility. We need to work on this. <laughs> Um, and so that's that's what the you know yeah. point of that. That would be pretty funny if it was a white anti-racist group that didn't let black people in. Right. <laughs> well, I don't know about funny. It would be the right word. I, it would definitely be funny, ironic, not funny. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't know. I, I yeah. think it's funny. <laughs> well, you know, and and you know, earlier you mentioned how much has changed, and you know, the election of Barack Obama and stuff. But of course, people are often pointing out. Also, how so many things have not changed and how, um, you know, there were a lot of people who acted as as if when Obama became president, we had reached a post-racial era. And obviously, unfortunately, that's not not true. So not to belittle how important some of those things are. But, uh, you know, if there's anything the last four years has sort of exposed, especially to white people, is just how much work there is to be done and that you yeah know. but i think th- th- there's your point you said exposed to white people I, I i think that people of color knew that that strain yes. that oh, it, it, it's been there forever i mean you know like when i looked at the the riot the insurrection mm-hmm. i was looking at people i went to high school with wow you know i th- it, like that wasn't a group of like you know it wasn't a group of uh, 20 or 30 somethings who were angry and ready to overthrow the government. It was people our age who were ready to overthrow the government. And uh, I, like I said, I knew those, pe- I know those people from high school. Like, mm-hmm. and I know those people, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, it's no secret. I, I talk about, I'm a big Howard Stern fan. And one of the things that has been interesting over this period is how many people call into his show who thought he was like them and uh and now are turning against him because they 
were like the people who marched and they don't understand uh-huh. why he's not with them. Uh, they, 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 you know, and it's, it's right. interesting. Uh, again, uh, you know, it, it, in saying that it's, um, it's that strain uh, that there's always been that part of running through America. And, mm-hmm. but I think it, it would do us a disservice if we didn't recognize how much has changed. And I think part of the vitriol on the other side on, on that, and when I say the other side, I don't necessarily mean Republicans. I mean, people who want to see all the progress or progressiveness of the past 50, 60 years re- uh, erased right. is that they are fearing extinction. Right. And right. yeah. Well, and I think the thing you were saying a moment ago, too, I mean, when I'm feeling optimistic, uh-huh. I think of the things like the, you know, the seeming, you know, white supremacist takeover of the GOP uh-huh. uh, as a last gasp, as yeah. a desperate measure because they, like you said, see themselves as nearing extinction. Uh-huh. That's when I'm feeling optimistic. Uh-huh. Um, I can see it that way. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of good arguments for that. Mm-hmm. But um, and and I've I've heard descriptions of saying you know when when does when does like a cornered animal you know or when does an animal fight the most viciously when it's cornered when right. it knows it's like the end yeah um, but uh, the, you know the other side of it of course is you know we both know the long history of this and the times when it's felt like you know like like learn I think a lot of people have more recently learned about reconstruction and that that period and uh you know that great series that was done relatively recently and uh taught a lot of people about stuff that taught me some things that i did not know definitely um and i think you know to know that that soon after the civil war there were all of these african-american uh people elected to uh fairly Mm -hmm. high positions in legislatures and stuff like that and then you know years later had to fight again just for the right to vote, you know, and, and today fighting for the right to survive still, you know, in the face of police mm-hmm. murders and th- stuff like that. So, you know, it, it, I think it's there's ways of looking at it both ways of feeling like, yes, we've made a lot of progress and that, you know, the, this hatred and this white supremacy mm-hmm. that we're seeing is is on its way out. But uh, there's also that danger. I mean, we came dangerously close to having Trump in again for another four years, yeah. which I think would have really solidified a lot of that Mm -hmm. um so um it's hard for me to be too sanguine about where we are i i i I think that your optimism is well-founded i hope it's well-founded um and i and i feel like that sometimes but i i have good days and bad days about this (laughs) yeah so Uh yeah it's it's uh it's very very challenging i think to all of us and um you know i think we like to think that this progress is sort of constant and we keep moving in the right direction i don't always feel like we're we're that way but you know mm-hmm. but hopefully in the grand scheme that you know uh the arc of justice you know <laughs> yeah well um, i think that hopefully what people have learned is that uh democracy costs and that you have mm-hmm. to keep fighting for it every day even when you make progress so mm-hmm. even when y- you you blow people's mind and elect the first uh you know i guess african-american president i always struggle because he is he is mixed (laughs) Mm -hmm. and but for for purposes of race in this country he's considered african-american and Mm -hmm. uh we elect 
were able to elect someone like that, and then the first African American vice president comes right. on the heels of uh, someone, you know, of someone trying to reverse all that. That doesn't right. mean the fight is over. And right. I think that's where the problem comes is that people go, well, we've reached the plateau. We're done. No, we've reached the plateau and the work never stops. It's so, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, for me, I liken it to learning about music. It, like Every time I learn something new, I go, oh, my God, look how much more there is to learn. Whoa, it's endless. I had no yeah. idea. It's like the universe. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah. Well, and I think that's also something that a lot of white people are kind of waking up to mm-hmm. that that – you know, whereas maybe they used to think I can I can learn about racism and then be done. You yeah. know, but I, I think a lot more white people are recognizing that this is an ongoing thing that we need to keep learning. And and the sense about what racism is yeah. has changed in a way for mm-hmm. white people. Mm-hmm. I, and again, I keep saying that because I think people of color have known these things yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. But but, you know, I, I when I was growing up. Racism was often defined as something very overt. It was the KKK. It was hating people with a different color skin or uh-huh. at least directly discriminating, not letting them swim in the pool or you know things right. like that. And I think people today recognize it as a much more pervasive system of privilege and of, of mm-hmm. uh, centering whiteness and all these yeah. kinds of things. So it, that that's a different concept. And I know a lot of people who've been involved in – civil rights activities and anti-racist activities in the past, including myself, have really had to try to adjust to, you know, we thought we knew what we were talking about, but it's changed and we yeah. don't know what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> uh, and that was definitely a struggle for me. I, I you know, I, I was pretty, you know, oh, yeah, I, I know uh, I've been involved in this for a long time, <laughs> you know, and then I definitely have had my comeuppance a number mm-hmm. of times and felt like I really actually am pretty clueless and I, I really have to go back to the drawing board and and be schooled, you know, yeah. particularly, you know, I know it's not your job, for instance, Rodney or any other person of color to, to teach me uh, what I should know. But I also appreciate the ways in which you and other people have done that anyway, mm-hmm. even though it's not your job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much, David. Now, <laughs> now uh, yeah, and I also think that we the bigger picture we live in a culture where we are so eager to get to the point or the end or see the result of or the prize like all those things when you know this is as i said earlier it's it's just an ongoing process and we're you know it stands the reason that we would see things different because those things that we fought against that are that we i was i was five the things that um were fought against in the 60s in and and early 70s we won those things are you know there are laws in place that that you know that allow me to live where i live and there are laws in place that allow me to go places and do things that you know it would be illegal to stop me to do but that doesn't mean now the next step is um you know to not only make it not only that it's illegal, but now see if we can change uh, how it how those thoughts and feelings and ideas are communicated and how they keep going, through, like how they're institutionalized in the culture. How can mm-hmm. we change those? It, it's a new it's it's a continuing. And I think particularly when you reach a certain age and you've done it for so long, you 
you you see the fight as it's still the old fight and it's hard to recognize the new fight but it's i, I don't I, I i'm saying all this to say i don't know if you need to go back to the drawing board it's just oh we're here oh oh we're uh, we're, we're we've arrived at the place i was fighting to get to oh okay well now where do we go oh you young people are leading us oh okay well oh that's cool <laughs> let's let's keep going i'm with you cool in fact you lead, I'll support from behind to some because I'm walking a little slower now than I used to. <laughs> and really that idea is not a new idea. I mean, I've heard people talk about the civil rights movement as being led by the children. You yeah. Know? And, yeah. And that people like Martin Luther King actually had to come along later and realize what the young people were, were saying and, and follow them. You know, yeah. and there is a lot to that, that, yeah. you know, that a lot of the older uh, African-American leaders and ministers and stuff were later to come to some of these ideas. At first, they were relatively cautious and, you know, oh, we don't want to make waves. And it was the young people who were really fired up and said, you know, we're going to go out and risk our lives to change things. Um, so that idea of the youth leading is is maybe a constant in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, think about it. John Lewis was 19 when he walked over the Edmund Pettus Bridge and was beaten. He was 19 years old. Right. Uh, and like, there were people much younger too that yeah. were very involved, and you know, and not only as martyrs like those four girls who yeah. were killed in Birmingham, yeah. but you know, who were really active in the movement. Yeah. I'm not saying that they weren't active, but I'm just you know, yeah. people are, some people are famous as martyrs instead of as activists, right? And that's yeah, something we do too, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so I was just thinking, uh, you know, in terms of getting getting back to uh, my story. So that the last part I wanted to mention is sort of as as an adult, as a, as a teacher, and also as a parent. Um, and, and, you know, we, we've been fortunate in our family. It, it, when our kids were little, we lived in Mount Airy, which is a very uh, uh, integrated community. Although one of the problems and one of the reasons we moved is that the schools are not reflective of the community. Um, and a lot of people send their kids to, to private schools and now charter schools, you know, in that area. And so they're not neighborhood schools, but our kids went to the neighborhood school and they were, you know, among the only, uh, white kids in their classes. Um, and generally that was a great experience for them. Um, and I think had a lot of impact on them growing up and, uh, uh, but there was one instance where in one of our sons was in a class where uh, we found out that there was a girl who said she wouldn't play with him because he was white. It's kind of an interesting, you know, in a way reversal. Um, although I think it's important to recognize some people like to talk about reverse racism. And I think, you know, we always have to recognize the greater system in play. And it's not at all the same, even though it's not you know, a great thing when there's exclusion in any direction, but I don't think it's at all the same when it happens that way as mm -hmm. the other way, when the whole system is designed around excluding people of color. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, in this situation, we happen to be coming in on a weekly basis to do music with the kids uh, because they had no music teacher. And um, so we took this as an opportunity to teach this song by our friend, Sarah Pirtle, that's called the colors of earth. And that, we thought was a really beautiful song. It's very poetic, but also very um, specific. And it also kind of puts skin color and color of eyes and hair uh, in a different context because it's comparing these things to the beautiful colors in nature. So instead of just black or white and actually 
you know, nobody's actually black or actually white. If you're just to talk about the literal colors, you know, we're all lots of different shades of this, you know, spectrum. Um, it compares those colors to colors of, you know, leaves and trees and stones and things like that. So it's, it's a very poetic, beautiful kind of a construct. And so we used that song in that context and talked with the kids a bunch about, um, about race and about, uh, that uh, and and skin color and stuff like that and it, it seemed like it actually had a positive effect on the dynamic in that class um now recently i actually brought this song up in one of these discussions in cmn about um children's music and race and stuff like that and uh sarah purtle herself the songwriter of this actually said you know I'm, I'm not so sure about that song anymore in some ways because it doesn't deal with the inequalities of the ways that people are treated. And a lot of people were, were sort of talking in that way. Um, so it's an interesting thing, you know, that I still think this is a beautiful song and I think it's an effective song. I also think there's something right about what Sarah was saying, what other people were saying that we do need to do more to address this and not just say, Oh, there's all these differences and isn't it beautiful and we need to celebrate that, but also to recognize the inequities and the ways that, you know, racism infects everything. I don't think every song has to do everything, though. So I think there's a place for this song and there's a place for songs that do those, that other work. So I don't know how other people feel about that, how Rodney feels about that. <laughs> oh, I, I think that art is a snapshot of where we are in time. And uh, I think that we evolve. And so... Uh, like the song I started my set with that I wrote, Don't Fit In, I, I also said I thought that a lot of the stuff in it was dated, but that doesn't necessarily change whether it has impact or is is meaningful. It's just we're human, we're evolving, we're changing. It's all, all part of the, the journey. So here's to evolution. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
Listening to Music for the New Revolution. I'm Rodney Wittenberg. I'm David Heitler Clevens. Music for the New Revolution is produced at Melody Vision Recording Studios in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. Music for the New Revolution is written and produced by David Heitler Clevens and Rodney Wittenberg. And edited and co-produced by Ben Flax. You can find us at musicforthenewrevolution.com or MFTNR. Like us on Facebook and follow our Spotify playlist. And our podcasts can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. And you can also be a patron, a supporter of our podcast on Patreon. This is Music, Music for, for the, the New, New Revolution. Revolution. Spend it all today and we will build you tomorrow. Three piece suits and bank accounts in Bahamas. Wall Street crime will never send you to the slammer. Tell all the children in the arms of the mamas. The 